Hi guys, welcome back to the Common Room Couch, where each week Essence and I ask each other burning questions, playing to each other's strengths, and engage in some healthy debate discussion, and now featuring banter. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as always, we want to encourage you guys to join in on the conversation. Please reach out to us if we misspeak, misquote, or misunderstand a resource we use. You can reach us on our social media or email us at thecommonroomcouch at gmail.com. Intro music, right? Intro music. Sorry, I knew I was forgetting something. Okay, welcome back to our podcast, you guys. Episode four. It's me, Maddie. Me, Essence. I realized I should have said, and me, Essence. And Essence, me. (laughs) And tis I, Essence. (laughs) No, I forgot to say the word and. I just said me, Essence. Anyway, welcome back, you guys. This week we are doing the recent ballots that are including reform on the decriminalization of drugs. Does that make sense? How is it done? Yeah, I was like, what's the word? Ballot initiative decriminalizing drugs in Oregon. Ballot initiative is decriminalizing drugs in Oregon. And one of my favorite topics, criminal art prices, aka how expensive it is to buy art nowadays, especially art from 60s, 70s, 80s kind of time period, 50s as well. But you know time it is, Essence. Time for the <laughs> weekly wrap. <laughs> We're filming these a little bit out of order, so... <laughs> we've done quite a few of these in the past 72 ish hours let me think do you have one <gasps> i know mine coming okay it became it was originally a quarantine obsession i guess but it's gonna be much longer than that for me i have always and we're gonna have a future ep- episode on this because i will force essence to make me talk about it <laughs> to prompt me my first fandom that i was truly a part of was the twilight fandom I was a major twihard back in the fifth grade. I reread those books so many times, loved the movies, cried during the last one with that crazy plot twist. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Read all the Vampire Diaries, watched the TV shows, Vampire Academy. I was into all of it. Finally, this summer, I watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the first time. It is my new favorite of all the favorites. It's really good. And it's it's a little bit... Now, like, Twilight and the Vampire Diaries and all those things don't really seem to hold a candle to the show, which has a lot more, like, I mean, it's a much more, like, feminist show. It has a lot more, like, social commentary, and it's really fun to see all the references that the show makes, both within the show and to, like, pop culture, Shakespeare. It's, it's like, a big puzzle. And you know I like puzzles. <laughs> What's a show you're obsessed with? Or, I shouldn't say obsessed with, because you don't watch that much TV. Is there something besides Game of Thrones? Because I know you and I watched a lot of Game of Thrones together. Yeah, so I basically rewatched the same five shows all of the time because I, if I'm watching TV, I just fall asleep like mid-episode. So I have to be doing something else while watching TV. So I just rewatch the same show. So if I'm not looking at the screen, <laughs> I still know what's going on. My recent rewatch has been The West Wing, which is like my all-time favorite show. We have to watch that together because I've been hearing so much about The West Wing because I think- So good. Was it? Was it early 90s or was it late 90s? It's late 90s until like 2004, I think. So it was, it's actually the exact same time as Buffy because that's how the context I've been hearing it in is like some really great shows that were on Oh yeah, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times in my Buffy podcast that I listen to, The West Wing is often like referenced. So we'll have to watch it together because I've been really interested in it. It's like for people who haven't watched it, it's a show about the president and his advisors. Like we said, it was like 90s to mid 2000s. All of the policies like universal health care. And I believe, yeah, universal health care was mentioned on that show as like a political platform. And just like a bunch of random extremely liberal stuff that was way before its time. But now is like being mentioned. So it predicts a lot. And it's just generally a good show. What are the other four? I didn't even know you like TV that much. <laughs> you said five and I was flabbergasted. Uh, Madam Secretary. I haven't watched that one. It's also another political show about... I know what it is. Runs- I know what it is. <laughs> I just haven't watched it. Have you watched Scandal? <laughs> I have watched Scandal. I love Scandal. It was my senior year binge of high school, not college. (laughs) And Criminal Minds. I also really like that show. Fun fact, I had to stop watching that show because I had morning practice at 5.30 
three mornings a week when I was watching it. I was driving myself to morning practice, like leaving at like 4.50 in the morning. And you know, they always have those scenes of people being watched from the bushes when they like leave in the dark and they're going to their cars. Mm -hmm. I would have to like hype myself out to walk into the driveway to my car because I was like convinced someone was watching me. I just like saw the chance of being murdered by a serial killer is so low. It didn't matter. I was because I was hooked on the show, so it was all I was consuming. All I was watching were people getting murdered and kidnapped and stuff. And I was I actually I don't think I got past like season four or five. Yeah. Well there's 14. Um Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and the other one is Masters of Sex, which is no longer on Is that a season Zari? No, that's... Oh, I think it's also Master of Sex, but it's a different one. Okay, let's start this episode. This... So, Essence and I... This question is a little out of my wheelhouse because Essence and I made each other lists of questions we wanted to ask the other, and then I kind of pieced them together. And I came back to my list one day, and all of a sudden... (laughs) There was just like, I had all these like long-winded questions and there was just a bullet point that said decriminalizing drugs. And I was like, I guess Essence wants to chat about that. So (laughs) I told her to tell me a little bit of what she wanted to talk about. So my question for this week is what's happening in Oregon, which I'm genuinely asking because I don't know what's (laughs) happening in Oregon and why are drugs being decriminalized? I know a little bit more about that. And how are we repairing from the war on drugs? Well, as you could probably guess from our sex work episode, I'm a big fan of decriminalization. Almost anything, if you're like, should we decriminalize? I'm like, yes. What about murder? Gotcha there, didn't I? (laughs) Grassroots, baby. (laughs) You guys, if we include this bit, you'll learn what that means in a couple episodes. (laughs) No, we never said grassroots, baby. Yes, we did. We're including it. Okay, okay. (laughs) We are including it. (laughs) And if you didn't hear it, then if you didn't hear it, then you're hearing it now. (laughs) There we are. (laughs) And so basically, in this cycle of elections... Oregon, one of their initiatives, Measure 110, basically said that they were going to decriminalize all, basically all drugs, the personal possession of them. So like cocaine, heroin, LSD, et cetera, et cetera. Hard drugs, if you will. And basically anyone that was in possession of those would would be like no longer a felony, which means you aren't going to jail, but instead be considered a civil violation. So basically like a $100 fine. But you could waive the $100 fine if you agree to a health assessment, which is pretty revolutionary if you think about current drug policy. Especially in the 90s, we see three strikes, you're out, and people are literally in jail for life for like marijuana possession three times. And so Oregon already had pretty modern, uh, if we will, modern drug laws. Like most people didn't go to jail for drug possession, but this is like just a radical push to say like, we're just going to classify it as a civil offense. It's no longer something we send people to jail for. And then we're also going to give resources to actually rehabilitate people. Another really cool part about this bill. Sorry, I just have a quick question. So just to double check, personal possession of drugs isn't illegal, but say you were found in possession of like a significant amount of drugs you were selling them is that still a yes so it's going to be state sold drugs how are you you know what i mean how are you going to personally come by drugs yeah so you so the selling and distribution of drugs is still illegal it's not a civil offense under this new code but even those sentences have been reduced under this ballot measure and i think that's one of the ways they marketed this bill was saying that the possession and like personal usage of drugs is not something that should be criminalized. Basically, like the way they marketed it was saying we're not just letting drug dealers sell drugs. It's more just making a statement that we shouldn't jail people who are drug addicts. I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. Like the state, I'm assuming, does the state legally sell marijuana? Yeah, Oregon is. And that's what we'll get to next. Okay, but it's not like they're not out there selling cocaine. So, so, but if you are found with cocaine personally, you're not going to get arrested just a $100 fine. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good clarifying question. Um, And I should just, I should have just said specifically, like, the distribution and selling of drugs is still, like, it's not considered a civil violation. I just meant to say that, you know, in a lot of places where marijuana became, like, legal to use, the state took over selling it. So it was still, like, you could procure it. But that's not happening with Measure yeah. 110. And I think that's what makes 
so the decriminalization of marijuana, I think, is very different than decriminalization of harder drugs because I think part of the statement behind decriminalizing marijuana is that you are making a statement as like a state or a country to say like marijuana is not inherently as harmful to citizens. It's like selling cigarettes, for example. And they're not in Oregon saying like the LSD, like they're not saying citizens should be doing LSD and oxycodone. They're just saying that we don't think you should be going to jail for it. Hot take. Should we have paired this topic with euphoria? Mm. Just a joke. (laughs) You don't actually have to answer it. I like how we paired them together. It was just you were talking about (laughs) OCs, which now I know are called OCs because of euphoria. (laughs) And so I was like... What is also really cool about this bill, like besides the decriminalization of drugs, it's basically saying that they're going to take the revenue that they're earning from the or decriminalization of marijuana. So whatever money comes from that industry, which is only growing each year, part of that money will be used to open up a bunch of drug rehabilitation centers across the state, a lot more programs to like do health analysis and other support services for people that are addicted to drugs. Um, they're also doing a lot of harm reduction measures. So things like housing if you're homeless and on drug, um, maybe some help with employment and things like that people who are drug addicts but also facing other types of precarity, basically reallocating those marijuana tax dollars to more programs like that. And I think that's what's also really amazing about this bill is that it actually, it's not taxing people more to have these programs, but it's actually just redistributing funds that are already there, which means that other states could possibly be doing programs like this. So a question I guess I have about the inclusion of the $100 fine and the ability to waive it with a health assessment. A, how many people do you think are going to just pay the fine or like not pay the fine? You know what I mean? Be like, why would I pay $100 and I can just like get a health assessment Mm -hmm. instead? And are there any actions taken from the health assessment like say you get a really bad health assessment what happens from there do they just say you're in really bad shape see you next time you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. yeah so I think a lot about this bill so all this has to be passed by February 1st of this year which is extremely short notice uh, for such a rehauling of mental health and addiction programs and so part of a lot of that stuff I don't think has been necessarily fleshed out but what I think the health assessment is meant to do is basically say that people who are addicted to drugs maybe, like, don't know that there's treatment options out there and that are, like, free to them. And also, like... That's such a good point. I just wanted to... Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way at all. And also, beyond just treatment for drug addiction, there's also, like, other forms of... I've said the word right, but, like, forms of precarity that they're facing. Like, they may need access to, like, a house or they may not have a job or they may need food or something. And there's a bunch of other social programs in which all those programs will receive more funding. And hopefully it'll be a more streamlined way to get people to those social services. So I guess this kind of makes me wonder, why now? Like, why Oregon? Why is the state the first? I mean, obviously, we know Oregon is a relatively more liberal state, but, you know, as opposed to Washington or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about this before, but Oregon has laxer drug laws. And they've already kind of made a stance that people in possession of drugs aren't necessarily convicted and then sent to prison. And so I think there's already a lot of ground compared to other states to start making decriminalization bills. And there's already a lot of drug addiction support systems in place that need to be built upon, but are still at least there. And a lot of other states don't even have the infrastructure to begin a project like this yet. Um, So I think that's why. I also think what's also so great about ballot initiatives generally is that they were created for groups um like some community group to like better their community in some way but they may not have institutional power to sway a state legislator and so that's kind of what happened here a large nonprofit drug policy alliance they like basically try to lobby for better drug policy across the country and they decided to launch their first one of their first decriminalization bills in oregon because i think they realized a lot of potential here and so like they have basically wrote slash passed this bill passed this ballot initiative through their efforts. And why now? I think you kind of mentioned at the beginning, but war on drugs. So in 2018, we arrested more than 1.6 million people for drugs. And then 86% of those arrests were for possession only, which means that like 86% of those people weren't selling or distributing drugs. And they were just minor or minor possession charges. But yet, like, they're spending months or perhaps years in prison, especially if they've done the offense more than once. Um, So I guess my question, and this may be a really dumb question, so, like, feel free to be like, no. How come in states where, like, for example, marijuana has become decriminalized for, like, personal possession, that is, 
people who are in jail because of personal possession of marijuana aren't then released. Like, it's like, okay, this is no longer illegal. So like, bye, you know, Mm -hmm. go home. This is expunged from your record. Yeah. Well, one, I think it's because we haven't federally declared marijuana to be decriminalized. So that means each Mm. state that does one of these ballot initiatives has, like, they write the bill differently. Like, for example, Oregon is able to include all these really intricate parts of the bill because it's a ballot initiative, and if it passes, it passes what's ever written in that ballot initiative. And because there's not, like, a federal, like, mandate to decriminalize these drugs, that means that every state kind of has the ability to do that. And so I think, for example, like, Obama's, one of his last pardons was to pardon a few thousand people who in states where marijuana is decriminalized, he commuted their sentences, which like, great, but there's millions other more out there. Yeah. And that's kind of what's always confused me. And that's what's so good about this bill is that it does commute those people's sentences that do have possession charges. Oh, that's so awesome. I really, okay. Even better. We love that. (laughs) I think, I think something that's really great about this and we talked about it a lot during Euphoria, our podcast, our first episode on that. Unlike it's normally been presented as like people who are addicted to drugs are like weak-willed or they're bad people, they're dangerous people. You know, there are a lot of people who have drug problems for various other reasons. I mean, in Euphoria, I don't even know if we talked about this, but you remember Cassie's dad becomes addicted to heroin because right. he gets in that really bad car accident mm-hmm. and they end up giving him some sort of painkillers. And the fact that not only are they saying, like, you don't deserve to go to jail for having a problem with addiction, necessarily. I mean, not that every person who does drugs has addictions, but um, but they're also providing some form of, like, treatment mm-hmm. for that as well. Yeah. is really, like you said, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's drug addiction is no longer seen as, like, one, like, a personal problem or the people doing it, like you said, are somehow, like, morally bankrupt or like weak willed whatever right that it's like this is a public health problem like one that we have institutionally like let happen with the opioid epidemic in some cases war on drugs etc like there's so many reasons why people are addicted to drugs and it's just been allowed to happen for so many years actually sorry this is something i'm thinking about now maybe for us but it's really interesting that this is coming up together because i don't know how much you know about the sacklers Mm -hmm. and like basically how they caused the opioid epidemic but they're huge donors to the art world yeah i remember reading a new york times article about that yeah so that's actually sorry you said that and i was like whoa that's kind of crazy you know pairing these together when i mean so many there was a whole guggenheim demonstration about i can't remember what papers they they threw but because their sacklers name is somewhere in the building Mm mm-hmm And it is. That's how people, I mean, this is from John Oliver's how I learned a lot about this. But basically he said, you know, the way to hold people accountable is they like to put their names on things. Not letting them do that is one way to kind of push back against what they've done. Mm -hmm. When you don't have a lot of power over a wealthy family like that in general, as like individuals. I think it's a good point. But yeah, like this shift towards a public health response to drug addiction, I think like one is like, Basically, we use arresting people for drugs as a reason to harass people, to arrest people, prosecute people, and, like, deport people. And those people that are continually facing convictions for a drug addiction are often the same groups, right? Like, in Oregon, Mm -hmm. there's a huge acknowledgement that there's such a huge over-representation of Black citizens that are being convicted of drug possession. And they're about, like, 5% of the people convicted for drug possession, but they're just 2% of Oregon's population. And you're not just seeing that, you're probably seeing it worse in other states, where you're just seeing a, a massive overrepresentation of people of color and poor people in drug conviction cases, which is not like an accident. Like, that was what the war on drugs, people have been saying that for a while. Like, that is the problem. And what you said, I mean, I think it's really important. It makes a lot of sense. And I think it clarifies a lot of kind of why this is happening now, especially when we've been seeing a much bigger movement towards like decriminalizing marijuana, but not necessarily other drugs, especially what you're talking about regarding race. Mm -hmm. Like it's not news to anyone, especially just like prison in general, the makeup of it disproportionate to the actual population of the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like as a closing remark and kind of hope is that I think there's a lot of recognition 
maybe perhaps because one, because so many white people have been affected by the opioid epidemic that I think just in general, there's been a huge shift in how we think about addiction, which has been like pivotal to passing bills like this. But I also think there's been a huge acknowledgement that the overrepresentation that people, there has to be some way to address the causes of over incarcerating people of color and communities of color. And I think this bill is like a first step for that. And it also acknowledges what are some of the after effects of that? Like, how are we going to help people get jobs and have homes and have food after they've been incarcerated or like after they're getting over a drug addiction? Like, it's not just decriminalizing, but it's taking like the tangible steps to help heal people and like heal communities. I think something that you just said also not to infringe on your hope segment But I remember kind of when defund the police, which again, we're going to talk about in a future episode, someone asked AOC in an interview what defund the police would look like. And she kind of responded, and I'm summarizing, Mm -hmm. but that it would look kind of like a suburb, how when people have problems with addiction or, you know, like white individuals with wealth have problems with addiction, they go to rehab. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the allocation of funds from the police wouldn't just be like given into the ether Some of them would be invested in rehabilitating people who wouldn't have the funds to just go to rehab themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And yeah, I think I'm really excited for the Defund the Police episode because I think it brings to, it kind of is a culmination of so many things we've been talking about. Yeah, and and how they actually will play out. And I think obviously ideas behind Defund the Police have been around for a really long time, just maybe not as widely known or like haven't been categorized in under one umbrella term such as defund the police you know people Mm -hmm. have said like oh we should allocate more funds towards like social work as opposed to this there's so much to talk about especially with how many different topics we've covered so far and how many things we want to discuss okay so um this is a question i'm very excited for because i feel like this was one of the first things we kind of or just art in general is one of the first things I just remember us talking about, slash you always talking about. <laughs> That's Okay, so this week's question is, are only for rich people? And why is there such a class distinction in social activities generally? But art, I feel like, is one that resonates with most people and kind of institutions of art being very segregated by class. Yeah, I was so excited for this question. So I feel like I'm going to be a little all over the place because I have a lot of a lot of opinions and thoughts and feelings. <laughs> and I think one thing I maybe want to start with was in some of my research, (laughs) one of the blogs I was just kind of reading that asked this question, the first thing I said is, yes, kind of, but if we step back, isn't everything in this world kind of for rich people? Which I think puts some things in perspective because, Mm -hmm. yeah, it definitely is in some capacity, but when you think of a lot of things, it's kind of built on capitalism, mostly paying off for the very rich. Love it. That being said, (laughs) I also want to preface that most of my background in art because of the way art history is taught in the U.S. is Eurocentric and Western focused. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of art that's really important and beautiful coming from the Middle East, from the continent of Africa, from the East, from South America. And I've taken one specific class on that. But most of the time when you're talking about the history of art in just like a general class, they do tend to stick to Europe and the U.S., So I just want to talk about that first, which is an inherent problem in art, but not necessarily the topic now. So when we look at the history of patronage, art has always really been for the rich or for rich institutions. They are who had the money to commission artists. And when you think about artists, like a work of art is really expensive, right? But say as an artist, you only make 12 works of art per year. In order to have like a living wage, depending on like where you live, say that that's, you know, $36,000, that's $3,000 per work of art. And so I think some artists definitely can churn out work in higher quantities. But I think a lot of times we look at something and we think that's crazy expensive and I could do that. But if someone, this is like how they are living and they've spent hours and hours on materials and time into this, I feel like that's just something to keep in mind. But in the history of patronage. In Greek and Roman era, it was a lot of time the state who was commissioning things for around the city in like state buildings, which is a lot of times where you see art in those um, countries. And then when we get into the Renaissance, 
there are some families that are super wealthy, like the Medici's, who can afford to commission really grand things. And it was definitely more common to commission like portraits or something, or maybe like a fresco if you were pretty rich for like the inside of your house. But the main person who was the main person, the main institution commissioning things is the Catholic Church. And that's why so much art that we see is so Christianity, Catholicism focused, Mm -hmm. especially from that time period, if we're looking at Eurocentric art. Obviously, as time moves on and there's like more artists and after that, art starts to like split up, you know, impressionism starts, photography becomes an art form and photography definitely made art more accessible, but more and more individuals kind of start to commission art or artists started to make their own art and then sell it through a dealer. Mm. And that really changes things because now definitely an artist works with a dealer or works with a gallery and then they sell their art. And then an artist typically gets like 50% of that commission. So the big change also is like who is making art. So in those older times, I'm talking about art was something that was an apprenticeship. So maybe you had a family member and you worked with like under your father or they sent you to work under someone. But now, obviously, like you can go to art school. Like anyone can kind of become an artist if they enjoy it and like do the work to become one, obviously. But so that has also changed because there's a, a much greater amount of artists in general and able to create work. So that's just kind of a quick history into things to kind of talk about now how obviously art there was still very much like wealthy and like wealthy institutions were who was creating it. But now we get into like the crazy prices that we see now. Mm-hmm. Is there anything like you want to kind of touch on before I move on? I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm going to listen still because I'm learning a lot myself. Oh, cool. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the like huge turning point in art history, this is the moment when art collapsed as like something grand. And that's the skull sale in 1973. So this oh, is really so. Yeah, no, well, it's really interesting because so there had been auctions, obviously, and what was selling a lot then prior to the skull sale was the works of old masters. Obviously, the issue with the works of old masters, so, you know, people who are painting in the 1500s, 1600s, they're dead. <laughs> like, there's no more. There's a limited supply. So Robert Skull was this taxi tycoon in New York who had a lot. He was new money. And so... To kind of fit in with the Upper East Siders, um, the wealthy New York elite, he kind of realized that like owning a taxi agency wasn't going to get him into kind of like the more exclusive places, but becoming a really important art collector would. But so he started collecting art of really, I wouldn't say unknown, but I mean, today they are super well known, but at the time, Robert Rauschenberg, um, Jasper Johns, Pollock, Mm-hmm. Uh, like Warhol, those in the 70s are not the big names they are today. So, for example, I think like, let me find the exact stat of how much he's buying these. And obviously take inflation into account. <laughs> but um, so Jasper Johns, which he had purchased for around $10,000, which is like a higher amount than normal. But like Cy Twombly, it was originally like $750. Or um, Robert Rauschenberg, $900. So that's how much he's purchasing these for in kind of like the late 50s. He decides to do this huge sale of his of his personal collection only from living artists. And he's pricing these things at crazy amounts. So that Robert Rauschenberg that I mentioned he had bought for um, $900 ended up selling for $85,000 in the 70s. So like crazy amounts of money. And... People kind of like end up deciding like what he liked is what was worth collecting. And so it was kind of crazy because mm-hmm. artists aren't making any percentage of that sale. So when he bought a Robert Rauschenberg for $900 and then it sells at this auction for $85,000, none of that mar- money is going to Rauschenberg. But Rauschenberg is still alive. So actually, famously, there's this big altercation that happens like Rauschenberg is at the auction and pushes him and is wow. like, so I did all the work and you get all the profit. And there's a video of this. Actually, um, a lot of this information is from my favorite documentary, um, The Price of Everything. So if you go to about 3440 in the movie, you can see that like it's filmed. And uh, Skull says to him, he's like, so Rauschenberg says, I've been working my ass off for you to make that profit. And Skull just says, how about what you're going to make now? Like, I've been working for you too. We work for each other. And basically what he was saying is like, 
now because Rauschenberg has sold for that much money, yeah, people he could charge more money to what he's selling. So this really revolutionizes the art world because in the 70s, there are so many more collectors looking to buy art than there are, you know, 100 years ago. And there are hundreds of thousands more collectors today than there were in the 70s. So the fact that now modern art has a price that benefits the wealthy who want to sell their work that they bought. And now um, there are more artists to flood the market with new work. So I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that before. <laughs> no, I just, kinda... it's just super interesting that like the price of or the extreme prices for art are kind of a relatively new thing. Mm-hmm. And I, cause I just never thought that, I mean, it makes total sense that people originally who could commission art were rich and then kind of privately held that art. And then now it's just that it's more accessible, but it's so much more money. And I think that's a super important point because, and this is something I definitely was going to talk a little bit more about later, but those, the way collectors have changed is really different. So I'm not exactly sure at what time. It's definitely a relatively new phenomenon, but definitely at this time, people who were collecting art were mainly collecting art because they were interested in art. Like they liked what they were collecting. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily the case anymore. People, it's called quote, like buying by ear. So like you hear this guy's worth a lot of money. So you buy his art. Maybe you don't like it, but like you're trying to diversify your portfolio and buy some (laughs) art that's going to be worth more. And so you buy this thing, like who cares? Um, And that's a thing that happens now. And so a lot of times what people were doing is so, for example, and this guy's also in the movie. He's probably one of my favorite people that I've ever heard talk. Um, but he was a Jewish collector who escaped Nazi Germany. He was, um, I think in the 40s, he was able to leave legally. But obviously, Jewish collector escaping mm-hmm. Germany. <laughs> so he was working, oh, I want to say in like an electrical factory, like in California. Ends up making a fortune. By, like, inventing something. And so he starts cre- um, collecting tons and tons of things. He buys... Um, for anyone who doesn't know who Jeff Koons is, he's basically, like, the most important living artist right now. And by most important, I don't actually mean he has the best art. That's completely up to, like, an individual. He sells his art for insane amounts, like $52 million, like, for one work of art. And he's actually created this entire thing, which is nuts, um, like a futures market where say like you wanted a work from him to commission it. And he's like, okay, like that'll be $25 million for me to do it. But I'll like, I won't have time to get to you because of my other projects until three years. And people will sell that piece of paper, a promise that he's going to make something for you for $25 million to another person. Oh my God. Like it's, it's nuts how like he's, he's really revolutionized the art market because like you know, Wolf of Wall Street guy, mm-hmm. he's been like compared to him, not like in the same, like he worked on Wall Street and he was just like an amazing salesman. Like he was like, everything's got to be new. Honestly, that's what he does. Mm-hmm. But so anyway, Steph, the guy buys his bunny in 1991 for $945,000. Today, $65 million. That's insane. His collection's crazy. Anyway, he donates a majority of his collection when he dies to the Art Institute of Chicago um, which is like his hometown, not really his hometown because he immigrated from Germany, but like where he like really built up a lot of his fortune. And for example, like where Essence and I lived um, or went to college, there's a nearby museum of two collectors who didn't have any kids who, when they died, set up a museum that was supposed to be like in their house where they lived for people to come um, like enjoy their artwork. It was their baby or whatever. And that was really a typical thing of old collectors donating it to the Met and like having their name in the newspaper for having a, like a collection of the Met. That's not the case anymore. It is a lot of people who are trying to diversify their portfolio, buy low, sell high, find an undervalued artist, buy a lot of their work, drive up the price, sell it. A lot of times art will just sit in like shipping containers for these from these people. Like, mm-hmm. so they don't have to pay taxes on it. Cause once you take it out, then you gotta pay taxes. There's, it's like very upsetting <laughs> to me. <laughs> it just, it's just crazy to me. Like as much as I love the art market, it's freaking crazy. 
but it's why I find it so interesting. Like Essence knows this. I'm not like a traditional art history major where I'm just like, oh, yeah, let's look at the color. And not that that's not important. <laughs> but like for me, it's like, whoa, what the heck is this art market thing that's going on? Yeah. Anything else you want to say? Not yet. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's totally fine. I think that's a really important thing to notice right now is the fact that there are really, really wealthy collectors who are purposely buying art for their portfolio, it's a, it's wealth to them. It's an asset. It's diversification. Like that's what art is. It's not actually. Like- wait, I do have a question. Sorry. Yeah. Um. So I guess now that there's more collectors entering kind of the market, does that do you think it influences the type of art that's created, or even the type of art that does well? Yes, it influences the type of art or that does well, like in the market, mm-hmm. because if you think about it, if you're someone who's investing in something. And you have a lot of money. There's a lot of influence in the market. Like you kind of get to determine if you buy something for a large amount of money, people are going to start to look at that. Right. And say critics start writing on it. And all of a sudden critics are saying how great this work of art is. And like historians and dealers and like you're getting more interested in it. All of a sudden now, like there are some leaders in the art market and then there are some sheep (laughs) and like, are the sheep following the right wolves, I guess. (laughs) Like, and so it definitely has an influence on who ends up if, I mean, and it could be like the first collector who purchases your work really is interested in you, but because you like Steph, for example, he, like a lot of people know who he is. They trust his taste. So Mm -hmm. say he becomes interested in someone, other people are also going to look to that person. Interesting. For example, there's another artist in that documentary who, whose art is really interesting. I'm going to try to pronounce her name correctly, but I haven't listened to the movie for a while. Um, But it's Nijdeka. Akunili Crosby, but she's from Nigeria. And she makes like she makes max 12 works a year. And she had had a baby the year the film was done, so she was only going to make like 6 to 8 works. And her art had like kind of started to gain traction. And at the auction that they show at the end, like her work had been valued at $300,000, but it ended up selling for over $900,000. Wow. And that's just because, like, of the people who were interested in it and, like, had attention. And then, obviously, a bidding war goes up. And now her art has sold for this much. So now people are going to be even more interested in buying her art because it sells for that much. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that can be good and bad for an artist. That can backfire if, like, that's a really short-term, like, bubble or spike in the market. That, like, like right now what's happening is because there's a huge push for, like, diversification – of collections or in museums, women artists, artists of color, artists from like various marginalized backgrounds are especially getting a huge spotlight on them. Margins for profit are way higher with those types of artists right now. And so Mm -hmm. like kind of profiting off the work of some people who (laughs) like, I mean, and, and that's what's so crazy to me is like, they're not, there's a lot more money in selling something the second time, the third time than it is the first time. Mm-hmm. Like the artist gets maybe 50% of the first sale. And after that, unless there's some like special clause that I don't really know about written in a contract somewhere, like the artist doesn't get part of that profit later. Wow. And like the auction house does mm-hmm. like the people who like resale, like, you know, the government does, they get like a tax cut from that or like taxes cut from like the price. Mm-hmm. So another artist, and sorry to bring up the documentary again, is that they follow the whole movie is someone named um, Larry Poons, who was really popular in that kind of like, he was in the skull auction. There were some Mm -hmm. of his works and there was a lot of, a lot of pressure for artists like Pollock who had gotten famous, like doing a drip painting to -hmm. continue doing exactly what they were doing. Like those were making a lot of money. Like don't change what you're doing. Larry Poons was not about that life. (laughs) Mm-hmm. is he the guy that's in the in like the shed or whatever yes he fucking <laughs> is <laughs> he's like he's so freaking funny but so people are like oh you can just keep making dot paintings like you're larry poons don't worry about it and he's like that horrifies him like someone someone, yeah. someone would say that to him and so he kind of ends up falling off the map because um like he's not doing what he was doing that like mm-hmm. made money and like a lot of times you know you can say oh, well, if it has this color from the same artist, it can be worth this much money. Like, that's how they do calculations. If they use red, if they, like, have a face in them, if they have, like, blah, blah, blah. So, most people in the art world think he's dead. 
Like, he said he's come to things, and people have been like, oh, I thought you died. He's like, nope, <laughs> like, still here. Um, but so now, though, in the movie, we're watching, like, this huge resurgence for Poon's paintings. And the whole reason why is they're doing, like, a stock market calculation of who's the most undervalued painter. And, like, mm-hmm. whose art can we buy and resell and make the most money? What I kind of want to talk about now is, like, when we talk about art being accessible, like, museums versus, like, private collectors. Because most artists, I don't want to speak for everyone, prefer that their art go to a museum. That's generally the preference. And mm-hmm. mostly because it's a museums are considered, like, democratic institutions. You know, right. like, you can, anyone can buy a ticket, walk in, go see works of art. When art is sold into a private collection... Maybe if someone's doing a specific show, like say someone has a Pollock and someone's doing a Pollock retrospective, which means like looking at their whole life and they're like, I want autumn rhythm number or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like this person has it. That person may say like, I'll loan you my painting and you can put it in this gallery show for nine months. But like, unless they plan to sell that painting or donate it to a museum, that's where that painting is staying. You're not going to see it. Some people in the art market will argue that like, there's an analogy in the documentary museums are like graveyards because you never have enough wall space to show everything you have. So things might just sit down in crates for Mm -hmm. a really long time and like not see the light of day. And the more you acquire, the less you can like have up in comparison to how much you have in the basement. I mean, and I see both points, right? Like I do understand like if things are going to sit in a basement forever, like maybe it is nicer to have it on someone's wall, but when the only people who can get it on their wall are people who can afford to pay a hundred million dollars for a painting. Right. You know, I think um, the way that this has really backfired and really, really hurt museums is most museums now can't afford to buy anything at auction at all. So the do they have to like, rely on donations or things like that? Most museums rely on donations or what they'll do is there's now like you have to adapt to the market, right? So some museums are saying, well, let's pool our money, buy this work, and we'll share it. Mm-hmm. So the only, I think the only museum they mention that can afford to buy a work at this price is the Getty. And the Getty is only allowed to purchase one thing per year mm-hmm. that have that like very strict limit on it. And so, you know, if any, if any institution and any, any individual could buy something, that would be one thing, right? Mm-hmm. But if collectors have priced out the market so high that even museums can't afford to buy things they would like at auction. That's that's really problematic. And that's when now is a museum even necessarily the same democratic institution that like it historically is? Right. I don't really have an answer to that. I like I think it's really difficult to say. I mean, obviously there are people who love art and like I'm happy that they own something really important that they get to like wake up and appreciate every morning when they like eat breakfast or whatever. I would love to be that person. Like <laughs> I would love to have a Hilma Offclan. I mean, her works aren't sold. So like I wouldn't, but you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it would be awesome. And I would like really appreciate it. But then like other people don't get to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably donate it to a museum, but like when I died. Yeah. I wonder like how, well, I guess, kind of two things on my that are ways to get around it is like like what are your thoughts I guess in COVID for museums that are trying to pivot to having more free services and showings that are like virtual so nothing is really like not on the wall because they're able to show whatever yeah that is really interesting and I think stuff like COVID always forces you to adapt to like whatever the circumstances are and I think institutions like museums are always much less enticed to adapt until something like as drastic as COVID happens because like if you have a steady influx of people doing something different might entail closing down the galleries which can you afford to do if people come to see a work of art there so normally that might be more difficult but when something like this happens I mean doing things online where maybe you know when you have you can buy the headphones or whatever virtual Mm -hmm. tours that's what they're called um putting those online but for everything in the collection yeah stuff like that definitely helps I think also what's really interesting 
is how that changes what's desirable in the art market. I think you and I might have talked about this. I always joke, sorry if you like the decorative arts, but I say that the decorative <laughs> arts are a farce. Like, <laughs> I just have never been interested when I go to a museum to, like, walk around the random dressers. Like, yes, they're beautiful. I bet they were cool. But, like, I wouldn't have wanted to buy them. Those used to be worth so much money. That, like, dresser mm-hmm. that you see mm-hmm. when you see the furniture and, like, the bed posts and everything. Um What's changed is, like, if you owned a lot of that, that's not worth a lot anymore. Like, that's sometimes not even sold in the same day as, like, a main auction. Like, it has its own, like, tiny auction. <laughs> um, and in the movie, someone said, like, contemporary art has become a luxury, bl- a luxury brand. Mm-hmm. It's another form of clothes, of, you know, cars, that when you become, like, a certain level of wealthy, you're expected to acquire. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's even furthered by, I don't know if you've ever like walked by Louis Vuitton store. Have you mm-hmm. seen his, their collection with Jeff Koons? They no, have the van, they have like a Van Gogh bag, which has one of his like arts on a bag and says Van Gogh on the side. They have it with like Rembrandt and Da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Like they quite literally <laughs> made contemporary art a luxury brand. <laughs> it's like, I look at it and I'm simultaneously like grossed out and like, I love Van Gogh. <laughs> like, I wouldn't buy that bag, but if someone got it for me, it would sit in my room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think as a society, not only do we have to work on like, I mean, obviously it's really hard to police collectors. Like if you buy something, you spend a hundred million dollars on it. Who are, how do we tell you what to do with that? But I think something that we really need to work on in general is making museums feel like more accessible spaces to people i think often they're very much places where it feels like if you have kids you can't bring kids because kids are loud and museums are quiet Mm -hmm. if like it's really prim and proper people might not feel welcome if they don't have like the look i'm just quoting that because it could be like clothes it could be your race it could be Mm -hmm. like your age i feel like that going into the clerk sometimes like it just feels so stuffy. You, even though I know yeah. like you work you work there, so it's like not like I know yeah. people that are there. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's the case with a lot of a lot of museums where it just it feels like I mean, even me going into a museum, I'm always constantly like on edge to someone think I'm trying to do something. Like they are and part of it is to protect the art. Like obviously you have a priceless painting on the wall. You want to do whatever you can to make sure nothing happens to it. When I worked at a museum, people used to throw a lot of freaking fits about not being allowed to wear backpacks in the museum or anything on your back. And the whole reason was like, say you stumbled or like you forgot that you had something on your back and like you just kind of turned and yeah. were unaware of how like large it was, you could hit a painting. And people would throw fits like, well, why can't I just bring it in? <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry, but like, we're giving you a quarter to put your backpack downstairs for like, it's free. Just please place it downstairs. Um, but yeah, and I think something is because, and I touched on this at the beginning, art history historically in the U.S. is very Eurocentric, is very Greco-Roman, Impressionist in France, um, pop art in the U.S., you know, mm-hmm. focused. Like, those are the big things, and that's what people want in their museums. And we are definitely seeing this trend towards diversifying collections. But I think a big thing also in museums is people aren't represented on the walls. When you go to the Clark, and it's a bunch of small white girls doing ballet and pose for a picture in, like, some blue dress or whatever, mm-hmm. like, that's a very different experience then say i'm trying to think of a good artist to like mention there's it's a lot of men i mean if you just saw like more women painters like most of the painters at the clark are men mm-hmm. um but even at the same time as like pop art and a lot of contemporary art is happening in the u.s there's also an insane art movement going on in south america um where almost they were painting identical things at some points. Like you can see two works of art and they look like they're painted by the same person. Mm-hmm. They had no communication with each other. But so it's not like U.S. art, art made in America is so great. And like, it's un- incomparable. <laughs> um, and so I think museums need to do a better job of not only collecting other art, but 
doing shows or gallery tours focusing on the limitations of their art or like Mm -hmm. critiquing racism in their art or sexism in their art. Um, And I think that would draw in more people who are, who want to learn things and not just about like, let me tell you something. Some male artists, they were real assholes. (laughs) They were real jerks. A lot of them, a lot of the famous guys that you know about, like Gauguin went and gave like hepatitis or syphilis, syphilis, I think, to a bunch of like underage girls who he like had sexual relations with before he painted them. And people look at them and they're like, oh, look at his use of color. What? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? He primitivized them and then like gave them like syphilis. I don't. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, I don't want to go to a museum and hear how great Gauguin was with his like use of color. That's like not what I want to go to a museum and hear. I would love to go see Hilma of Clint and how like freaking cool she was. Plug my, <laughs> plug my thesis. <laughs> but, um, you know what I mean? I think like that's something museums can really do to help make other people feel welcome in their space is like, be willing to critique artists. They're dead. Mm-hmm. What, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> What are they going to say? They're dead. They've been dead for 100 years, 200 years. Yeah. So, I think it's a really great point. Mm. <laughs> Self high five. Sorry. <laughs> I could talk for a long time about this, but so if there's anything else you want to say, I rambled. No, I think you also ended on a great note of like, this is how we can make them more accessible to people. So yeah. I think you ended well. Mm. I think you did art a great is, job. Art is a great way to spread various political, social messages. Artists have a voice. Don't just go sit there. <laughs> this is just an anecdote for you. I went to the Louvre and I watched someone not look at anything behind them, move from painting to painting and stand in front of it as their husband or brother, I don't know how they were related to them, took a picture of them in front of each painting on the wall. They didn't turn around and look what was behind them. They just they just took a picture in front of each one. <laughs> don't do that. You know what I mean? Like there are some really cool stories in art Raft the Medusa based on a real story. Go look it up. It's disappearing. They try to use like special paint and the colors fade. It's not like meant to last. Like it can't hold its color. So it's literally going to be like an all black painting in like 20 years. Go look at it now. I mean, don't, you don't have to go to France, but like. <laughs> so yeah, please just don't do that. That's my pet peeve. <laughs> you see when people are just like, ah, oh, cool. Take a picture and then like leave. All right, that's all for this episode. (laughs) We hope you guys enjoyed. Please reach out to us on our socials and let us know if you learned something new or if you have any other opinions. Um, Keep your eyes open for our next episode, which is TikTok and sex trafficking, a spicy title. (laughs) (laughs) Bring back spicy. Oh my God, that again. If you'd like to support us in our podcast, please check out the description. We'll have our website and any additional resources on today's topics. Bye.